This is the Sensitive Rebel Podcast, and I'm your host, Steve McCready. Join me for conversations with fellow sensitive rebels as we discuss the challenges of making a difference in a world that touches us deeply. If you're ready to turn your sensitivity into a secret weapon, then you're in the right place. Let's do this. Hey, Sensitive Rebel. Today I'm talking with Zeli Triantafilu. Zeli is a toxicologist, stress resilience and wellness speaker, and coach. Using the same critical thinking that allowed her to synthesize cancer drugs in the laboratory, she founded MindZen.com, that's M-Y-N-D-Z-E-N, to be the bridge from stress and burnout to your most healthy, whole, and powerful self. She helps clients use science and neurobiology to conquer toxic stress, defeat burnout, and live their best life. As a speaker, trainer, and integrative wellness coach, Zelly brings science to life by reacquainting audiences with her own amazing internal neurobiology. She teaches practical ways and strategies that empower you to thrive in a stressful world without burning out. Her program, Brain Reboot, From Burnout to Peak Performance, helps participants change minds, brains, and lives for the better. Now, for many sensitive rebels, it's very easy to get pulled off of our paths by the ideas or suggestions of others and by the norms of the world. And then we might have some of what the world would consider success, but it doesn't come with a sense of happiness or fulfillment. If any of that sounds familiar to you, you're definitely going to relate to some of Zelly's story that you're going to hear today. One of the things that I really appreciate about her work is that she is at her core a scientist and really does dig deeply into the research behind these concepts and she really knows her stuff. That said, she's not presenting it to her clients like a scientist. She's able to take it, translate it, and break it down into really simple, easy to understand concepts that can be applied and put into action. Now, I'm also going to put in a plug for her weekly email because it's not just full of practical content, but it's fun too. And now, here's our conversation. Zelly, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. It's so good to hear you and see you. <laughs> I'm glad to have the, the chance to talk to you and about what you've got going on. So tell me, Zelly, what are you rebelling against? I'm rebelling against the conventional pathways to happiness that instead of happiness, they take us to burnout. Tell me more about that. And specifically, let's start with the kind of the origins of that and when you decided to, uh, shall we say, take on that particular cause and rebellion. How far back shall we go? As far okay. as you want. <laughs> let's see. So let's go back to when I was about nine years old. I decided that I was actually here on this planet to find the cause of human suffering and develop the antidote for it. So when I shared this aspiration with my parents and I told them that I want to find the cause of human suffering, the antidote for it, and then write and speak to the world about it, they said, you're crazy writing and speaking our hobbies. And if you want to be happy, you should be a scientist and you should get a great education and you should become an academic. And, you know, there was a whole list of things I was handed in order to be happy. So at that point in life, I decided that I wanted to be happy. So I was going to do exactly what I was told I should do to be happy. So <laughs> from there, I got a scholarship. I went to England to study, out of all things, toxicology, you know, the study of harmful elements to the human body. I then did cancer research, I developed five drugs for three different types of cancer, 
Then I moved to the U.S. to build a successful career for 20 years. And I could go on and on and on. I did exactly what I was told was going to make, make me happy. And 20 plus years later, instead of happiness, not only I burned out, <laughs> but significantly injured my spine. And that's when my mission in life, you know, became to create unconventional pathways to happiness that are a lot more aligned with our true essence and our true spirit. That's quite the interesting insight to have at nine years old. I'm really super curious now about you at that age and if you have any ideas about what would have led to a nine-year-old having that sort of insight or awareness or thought about things. There are a lot of things that made me who I was at nine years old. And first of all, I can see that you're thinking of me as a nine-year-old, this really brilliant, introspective nine years old. I was actually a very anxiously attached child that would get into all sorts of mischief to get attention. <laughs> I would jump inside wells, jump up off swings. And my parents were in their early 20s when they had us. They had me and my sister at the time, later my brother followed. And they were basically these sweet, wonderful human beings that they were kids themselves when they had us. So they were really involved in living their own life and we were left alone for a very long time. So I felt not seen, if you will, not reflected from our environment or my parents were not really attuned to me and I would do anything to get attention. At the same time, I was raised in Greece and one of the most popular hobbies of Greeks is to play backgammon and talk about different ancient philosophies and try to break down the dramas of life and conversations in Greece sometimes over backgammon. They look like Greek tragedies to a certain degree, right? So all I could hear is my grandparents and my mom complaining about the economy and life. And I could see all this suffering and I'm like, why all this suffering? The sun is shining outside. We're surrounded by the sea. And why am I feeling so anxious and so alone right here? So I need to get to the bottom of this. So you could say, to summarize what I just said, you could say that it was my own internal hole in my heart from various different sources that made me very eager to want to get to the bottom of pain and suffering and find a way out, create a more happy existence, if you will. I can totally see that. That's really interesting to have that sort of awareness and insight at that age. But I think children are, of course, naturally observant and curious. And so it sounds like you, in the way that kids can, had this you know really interesting idea and thought related to all that you were, were seeing and being exposed to, for sure. Now, Let's just imagine if we can play pretend. What if nine-year-old you, instead of listening to your parents, oh, you need to do this, you need to do that, this is the, the right route, had just dismissed that and stuck to your idea and pursued it from there? Have you ever thought about what might have happened and how things might have gone? I never actually took myself down that path. And it's interesting that you would ask me that question because I do a lot of journaling and visualizations and the way I keep myself centered involves a lot of looking at life from different perspectives to find a better way of doing life. But I never thought about that this way because part of my own journey and most importantly, my healing journey has involved me accepting and creating a new narrative about the parts of my story, you know, that all of them led me to this moment today. And to a certain degree, I'm looking at everything that's happened 
sort of one life experience that I wish I didn't have to experience. I see every single thing that has happened to me personally, being extremely critical to who I am today and how I show up today. And, you know, I never thought about it. I never thought about what would have happened if I did not study toxicology, if I did not develop drugs for cancer, if I didn't build a 20 year successful career, if I didn't burn out. I don't know. I'm just happy that I've taken this path and this path has led me to this moment, to where I am today. Is it okay if I ask you about the one thing? I can imagine that's probably a pretty pretty powerful and significant event if that's the the one exception here. Yeah, it is a pretty powerful and significant event. 12 years ago, I was pregnant with my second child. I was around 20 to 22 weeks of gestation. And during that time, there was a lot of upheaval. It was obviously after the recession. So there was a lot of turbulence in corporate healthcare. I worked for a big pharmaceutical company and there were a lot of layoffs trying to make up the budget deficits all the way across the board. And there was a transition. Essentially, two gigantic companies broke up. They divorced each other. And then we were all kind of like left and distributed, if you will. Most of us uh, were laid off and some of us were kept on board. To cut the long story short, it was a significantly stressful period in my life. And my doctor discouraged me from allowing those external events to impact the well-being of my baby and encouraged me to go on bed rest for a while because there was a hematoma that had formed because of stress, essentially. And that hematoma could be detrimental to the well-being of my baby. And Long story short, I tried to go off on bed rest for a while that I was concerned about my sustainability with the company and my financial future. So I went back on and they were not very respectful of the restrictions. And as you can possibly imagine, at my 22-week ultrasound, there was no heartbeat. So unfortunately, although, and I've never spoken about this publicly, Steve, so it's hard to talk about this, but although my physician said to me, it was really nothing that I did that caused that placental abruption that resulted to the passing of my son. Obviously, I did a very poor job of managing the extreme stress of a hostile takeover in my corporation. And it's the one part of my relationship with stress and my life story that it still hurts. I see the gold out of it. I see how my son came into my life to reflect the truth of my being and set me back onto the right path. But it's still hard for me to fully accept that I had to lose him in order to see the truth. One, I appreciate you you sharing that with me. And two, that's certainly such a high price to have had to pay, even if it was a really valuable lesson to be taken there. So I could see why that would be a really difficult thing for you. This for sure is the greatest loss of my life by far. I think anyone who's lost a child would tell you the same thing probably. Now, coming back to what you had said about all your other life experiences and your roundabout journey to to get where you are, I think that is what is really commonly felt by people, right? Is often we have some insight or awareness fairly early on of what we're here to do or where we're supposed to go, but it seems that for whatever reason, the path 
is rarely any kind of short straight line. It's like we've got to do some crazy roundabout up down path involving a bunch of you know side trips and detours and getting lost. Tell me as you went into this path of yours professionally and were following the the recipe given to you for happiness, success, etc. At what point did you start to question that guidance and start to wonder, like, I don't know if this is quite the right answer here. You know how we all think that when I arrive to a certain destination, when I will have a certain title or a certain amount of money in the bank or I'll be financially secure, then I'll be happy. I think my first true wake up call that I was on the wrong path was at that moment. And I want to say this was fairly early in my professional life. So, you know, I moved to the U.S. I think about 22 years ago and fairly quickly, corporate America just loved me. They couldn't get enough of me. So I got promoted into a management position where suddenly I went from the starving student from a poor country to having this beautiful big house and I could just remodel the house and buy any car I want. And that was fairly early in my professional career. And suddenly I realized that that song by Talking Heads, (laughs) Once in a Lifetime, I looked around me and I found myself in a different part of the world, living in this beautiful house with a swimming pool and all these great things. And I'm like, what is up? Why am I not happy? And what's worse, why do I have to drink wine at the end of the night to go to sleep? Why am I having such a hard time sleeping? Why am I feeling anxious? Why do I need to see a therapist? Something is not adding up here. I thought that when I get there (laughs) to that destination, everything's going to be great. But from having this question surface on my mind to actually doing something about it took a fairly long time and a lot of self-work. We're talking about a good 15 years in between of more pain and more suffering and (laughs) an injured spine and if only us humans were so quick as to just go, oh, that doesn't seem to be working. I'm going to just change direction now, huh? But we all seem to have to go through our own experiences and, and challenges. What would you say for you were the the obstacles that got in the way of bridging that gap between awareness and taking action to create change? You know, What I thought the obstacles were and what the real obstacles were are two completely different stories because, you know, typically when we realize, oops, I'm in the wrong path, I need to take a different direction, you know, all the different buts come in the way. And but as in B-U-T, my accent sometimes mispronounces things. So, you know, at the time I remember I was thinking I'm in the wrong path, but I have this big mortgage now. With a big house comes a big mortgage. Then later, I'm in the wrong path, but now we're struggling. Uh, Recession has hit us hard and unemployment is very high. Or then later, I was going through a divorce. So I'm like, I I know I'm in the wrong path, but now the financial responsible party, you know, for my family, or I know I'm in the wrong path, but I'm 6,500 miles away from home. There's always a reason or a seeming reason as to why you cannot just change the path. If you fast forward and you add a lot of scrupulous self-work and actual willingness to go deeper and see the truth of my being, see what's dysfunctional, see what needs to change. And hours of therapy, you know, I'm very open about my relationship with therapy. I find it extremely valuable. 
What really was the reason why it took me so long is because for a very long time, I allowed external events to make themselves at home in my body and my mind, in my spine, <laughs> come with me to bed at night in my sleep. And I gave them all the power. I used to say, well, you know, yeah, I'm in the wrong path, but my boss is very critical or he has very high expectations of me. So I have no choice. I have to work this hard. Well, the truth is I have no control over what others are doing, you know, what my corporate culture is or my manager's leadership style, but nowhere along the path, anybody told me that, guess what? You can't stop all those external things from taking over your body and mind, determining how you feel and function. And long-term, you know, because it, it's ironic that I'm a toxicologist, allowing all those external things to come in and make themselves at home in our body and mind is the most toxic <laughs> element in our life. It's not unconscious people. It's not critical managers. It's not the economy. It's how we allow those things to inhabit our body and mind, determining how we feel, how we function, our well-being, and everything else. So for you, what do you think about your history, yourself, your temperament, if anything, might have made you more subject to these outside forces and voices, whether it's a parent or a boss or just societal messages? What do you think it was about you that led these to have the sort of impact they did on you for so long? Okay. So if you were to ask me this question like 10 years ago, my answer would be very different. <laughs> I think if I was to summarize what it was about me that made me so prone to those external voices, I would say not very well-developed sense of self for a lot of different reasons. We can go super, super far and we can look at the history of Greeks and epigenetic influences in how I was raised. And then my environment in being raised with young parents that were not really aware of the attachment theory and you know, John Balby's work, and they weren't very attuned to me. So my self-worth was not solid enough. You know, I needed external approval. So starting from that kind of like background, it doesn't matter if I was an intelligent child that had all these great ideas. At the end of the day, I wasn't really striving for excellence for the sake of excellence. I was striving for excellence in trying to get that external approval. You know what I'm saying? To cover that hole in my heart and feel good about myself. I'm real curious. Can you dive into a little bit more the, the Greek cultural and historical piece and how that plays in? Because I, I hear that being something that's a part of this, but I'm going to profess enough ignorance around at least a lot of Greek culture beyond some of the things we all learned in, in high school history that I would like to understand better what you mean by that. Yeah. And, you know, uh, I also profess to being very bad in history, but I guess from my experience, from my lens of perception of how the brilliant Greek history, you know, of the seven wise men and Aristotle and the Greek philosophers and what happened in the subsequent years does have kind of an influence. And I can see it in the psyche of the Greek. We went from being the birthplace of civilization and the heart of philosophy and science and medicine to basically being under Ottoman Empire rule for 500 years and today being a very poor country, essentially, that is 
very much still driven by that Greek pride of who we used to be. And to a certain degree, it's very interesting because when I go back to Greece these days, and keep in mind, I was in England for almost 10 years, and then I've lived in the U.S. for 22 years, but I was raised in Greece up till I was 17. Even if you're talking to a fisherman or a humble person who does not have a brilliant education, the level of conversations is so stimulating. It is like talking to Greek philosophers, or if you're talking to an old man at a Greek bench, So there is a certain degree of Greek pride for who we used to be and a sense of failure for what we have failed to become. And if you fast forward that into the story of my life, finding myself on a scholarship in the UK, you know, synthesizing drugs for cancer, I was like a a black fly, as we say in Greece, in a white cup of milk because I had an accent. I was darker. I looked different, right? So I always had that little chip on my shoulder. I had to work a lot harder to survive in environments, you know, improve my worth. And to take it a step further, I remember when Greece hosted the Olympic Games back in 2004, I would get so enraged when people kept telling me that Greece was not going to be able to handle the Olympic Games. It didn't have the infrastructure, you know. So there is a mixture of Greek pride for who we used to be. And perhaps a little bit of a sense of shame of what we did with that, that I couldn't help but notice in myself when I found myself in an environment where I wanted to be the best and I almost killed myself to be the best. I had to develop not one, but five drugs for cancer and I had to be number one in corporate America, you know. So that history has also influenced me epigenetically, at least, which was on top of the influence of You know, my parents doing the best they could. When I grew up in Greece in the 80s, the best way to raise a child was to let them cry out. There was nothing about attunement and being responsive to your child. You know, so when you add those two influences together, you get a little perfectionist kid (laughs) who wants to do everything perfect, who is the teacher's pet to the point of exhaustion and burnout. I can imagine as I'm hearing you talk about this, like I find myself experiencing this sense of pressure and obligation. It's like, we've got to restore the historical you know, greatness of Greece. We've got to do great things and show people that no, we're worthy and we're still a great country while underneath we feel really not very good about ourselves as a country and as a people or something like that. That's what I'm sensing. So you're carrying these multiple pressures here that are really strong forces. One other thing I'm I'm wondering about is, do you think that gender played a role in any of this as well? Absolutely, definitely. You know, because first of all, going back from our origin story, right? Being raised in Greece, it's still kind of like the old country where at least archetypically, I was supposed to follow a certain path, to become a mom, to raise a whole bunch of kids, to become a great cook. While at the same time, my parents' messages were, you need to become a scientist. So you can imagine that created a big conflict. And then when I found myself in a foreign country in the UK, I realized that in the laboratories, while I was doing cancer research, 95% of the people around me were men. And it was very difficult to feel a sense of belonging. So if you bring into the UK, a Greek young woman who's basically raised in an environment where she wasn't already seen. You know, you can imagine now place me in a new country where I stand out even more and it's a male-dominated society, right? 
So for me personally, the way gender like played into my whole, whole story is that it added to your point, an extra layer of additional pressure where I had to be even better, you know, than the person next to me. You know, if they came in at nine, I had to get there at eight. If they were able to write so many words towards the thesis, I had to write 20 more. You know, I had to like really take it up a notch to be able to stand out. And of course, this became almost impossible to (laughs) overcome in corporate America. Whereas leadership, I got up to leadership positions fairly early. I was getting promoted every year and a half. So I found myself in a leadership position where only 60% of the those positions are filled by women, where I was always an outsider. I always had to kind of earn my keep for being there. And I was definitely pushed and challenged every step along the way. Yeah, it was not easy. So listening to all of this, the thing that strikes me is the question of how on earth did you hang in there as long as you did with all of this? That's the amount of strength and determination that it, that it must have required seems really tremendous with all of those forces pushing on you. What got you to the point of saying, I need to start taking some action to do something about this? Uh, what really got me to do something different or differently was losing my son. This was the first moment where I realized that I truly had to change things for the better. This kind of lifestyle, as lucrative as it was, as well as it made me look, it was not sustainable and it was not going to end well. So I will forever be grateful to my son for creating that line in the sand for me, where I realized that I needed to learn new coping skills, where the critical boss, the (laughs) corporate culture, the economy, everything else that's happening around me does no longer have an easy access into my body and mind impacting how I feel and function. And in a practical sense, that meant that I was kind of ready to take back my own power. And I know this may sound like a paradox to a certain degree, because here I am powerless. I lost my child. I realized that I'm on the wrong path. It's not conducive to my well-being. I'm realizing that what looks really good on the outside world and what the world is rewarding me for is actually my ultimate failure because it gives me no happiness. But in a practical sense, that opened up the door for me to start exploring going back to my roots and what the ancient Greek philosophers used to say about healthy mind, healthy body, and realizing that 2,500 years later, robust scientific research had caught up with what they've been saying all along. I opened the door to mindfulness, to self-compassion, to different alternative practices that before the unfortunate passing of my son, I used to laugh at those things when people would say, so what do you think about meditation? Or have you read the latest book of Eckhart Tolle? And I'm an avid reader, but I would say, dude, have you seen my to-do list? (laughs) I don't have time to stop and listen to the flowers and count my breaths. But that whole experience led me to go back inwards and try to figure out what do I need to do to create an unshakable core of internal strength? where my happiness and my well-being 
and the quality of my life is not so dependent on everybody and everything else around me. That was the first and most critical shift, if you will. And from there, it took maybe another five or six years where, believe it or not, and I think there's a good positive message for all of us in there, injuring my spine, getting diagnosed with a debilitating condition that prevented me from doing that highfalutin 80% travel job is what completely changed my life. It was almost as if the universe conspired, like Paolo Coelho says, to take me out of that path completely. In this journey for you of trying to, to turn things around, right, hitting this breaking point with your son, starting to turn things around, how did you go about doing that? Just like you pointed out earlier, those life-changing journeys, they're not very linear or straightforward. But to more directly answer your question, that involved a whole bunch of doing a whole bunch of different things differently. So yes, certainly it's uh, opened up the door for me to start reading like a maniac, trying to explore how all those different ancient philosophies have been brought to life today in modern science. For example, reading all about mindset, Dr. Dan Siegel's way of looking at the mind as the main regulation of energy. It involved me getting certified in different modalities where I could be more of a source of support and security for myself. It involved working with great therapists that held my hand every step along the way and helped me manage my anxiety, my fears, boosting my own emotional intelligence. And it also involves slowly but surely taking small, brave steps out of my comfort zone. I know that maybe it's an unconventional view of what looked like tremendous success. You know, somebody who makes really good money and drives a really nice car and has all these awards. That was kind of my comfort zone. For me to do something like this, to go to a podcast and be interviewed or writing a blog or speaking publicly about my views, that was not within my comfort zone. So I also began joining different groups. For example, I joined the Nonfiction Authors Association my dream was always to be a writer. And I was told that I'm not good enough to be a writer. I should be a scientist. So I joined different groups. I started writing my own blog. I invested time and energy to go through National Speakers Association Speakers Academy. So, you know, there were a lot of different things. I think one thing that would be helpful for other sensitive rebels would be that I was open to exploring different avenues and different perspectives and different practices and just be a real scientist in my own life and experiment with what works. And oftentimes I found that multiple different things worked at the same time. Like for example, learning mindfulness for myself and working with a therapist was a great pair. You know what I'm saying? So it was really a lot of trial and error, experimentation, seeing what kind of things clicked or connected with you and probably some synergies, it sounds like, along the way as well. Definitely. And you're bringing up such a good point because oftentimes people say to me, you know, they're looking at me and my life and walking away from the gold <laughs> chains of corporate America and starting my own business out of nothing with no business background. And they're like, how do you do it? Like, how are you so brave? I am by nature so anxious and fearful. And you just spoke to a very magical piece of the recipe because 
that kind of fearlessness and courage, it's nothing other than the moment-to-moment adjustments we can make to recalibrate ourselves and regain our balance because we will go up and down in the topsy-turvy twists and turns of life. How have you been able to make some of these, I'll call them maybe stretches, right? Where we we can't necessarily do this big giant move, which is everyone wants to have this big, you know, well, when I'm confident or when I'm this, then I'll do it. And and those of us who've walked those paths know that's not how it works. But for you, there are those moments we have to take little steps, little leaps of faith. And how have you managed to do that and then build on those, would you say? with a little bit of chaos and a little bit of grace. (laughs) My secret in how to take action when I'm really, 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 really anxious. It's another unconventional thing that I do. So instead of waiting until I'm not anxious or when I'm feeling positive or when I'm on top form, my practice in life is, okay, how can I be with those uncomfortable feelings without allowing them to derail me? or stop me from doing what I want to do. And if we shift our goal, if we don't expect to be perfect, and if we don't expect to get to a point where once I figure out my fear, I hear that a lot. People tell me, once I do this, once I lose 10 pounds, once I learn how to manage this, once I figure out the pain in my knee, then I will lose weight or, you know, whatever. And for me, it's more like, guess what, dude? This is it. This is how it is. (laughs) You want to do something? and you don't want your fear and your anxiety to derail you, make friends with your fear and your anxiety. Be with it. It's very easy when I'm feeling anxious to just run away from it. Go do some shopping or go hang out with my friend and have some wine. I try to get away. So now I'm like, okay, well, I want to do this. I want to talk to Steve today. So come on, anxiety. Come here and sit on my lap. You want to work with me? Shall we do this? So yeah, really just transforming your relationship with those feelings instead of avoiding them, dodging them, numbing them, engaging with them. Yeah, befriending them to a certain degree, right? So, you know, instead of trying to get rid of them, just giving them the opportunity to be heard and acknowledging that they're there, you know, and just trying to figure out, going back to the moment-to-moment adjustment, how can I feel anxious about something and not allow the anxiety to determine what I do. It's a different way of looking at things, but it's not really that different because sometimes when you go like to Thanksgiving dinner and you have your aunt that is always critical of you, you have to coexist. You have to coexist with a lot of different elements of life. Not everything is going to be exactly how we like it to be. So I'm seeing fear or anxiety or any negative emotions that may come up. I'm like, okay, great. Mind fitness gym. You know what I'm saying? Like I see them as an opportunity to cultivate my own resilience. And the only question I have for myself is, okay, how can I be with this without it determining what I do? It is really transformative when we, when we make that sort of pivot with them. Along the way, as you've been working on this, I'm sure you've had your share of obstacles or you know, challenges or struggles. How have you gotten yourself to keep going, even when the progress has been slow or when it's been more of a regressive sort of situation? How do you get yourself to just keep moving forward on your journey? Usually when I have a major fall, for example, I'm sure a lot of people can empathize. 2020, I had worked so hard for over two years 
to get to the point where I had booked workshops almost every single month of 2020, I had a workshop. And then I had to, one by one, fairly early in my business development, I had to cancel every single one of those, right? So when I get to those monumental moments of failure where I cannot see a way out, I'm like, oh, there's no way out of this. I allow myself to just feel defeated. It's part of life. I oftentimes will turn off my laptop and I will take off and spend some time in nature just listening. And for me, especially, there's something really magical. Although I was raised by the Mediterranean, there's something really magical about powerful rivers. I love to swim in them, meditate by them, just get away, turn off my laptop and allow myself to just be with the realization that, hey, everything you've worked for for the last two years has just turned to dust. You have to start over, you know? And then it's a matter of giving myself grace over it and not resisting what's happening. I see happiness and success as a matter of like, how do I use my energy? And sometimes, Steve, to be honest with you, it takes a few days to snap out of certain life situations. I'm sure a lot of people can relate after everything we've experienced with COVID and surviving a pandemic. But then it's a matter of finding the little small things that I can do, like you very correctly pointed out earlier, the micro steps that will help me figure out a new way. And sometimes that new way is fairly easy to see once you clear your mind from all the clutter and all the anxieties and the fears. And sometimes it takes joining a mastermind. Like I'm part of two different masterminds, for example, where heart-centered helping entrepreneurs like myself are supporting each other. We're getting a lot of trainings and business strategy and so on and so forth. Because for example, this pivot, this pandemic pivot involved me shifting everything online, which is by far the most anxiety-producing medium. (laughs) I'm a lot better in person versus having to be on Zoom or, you know, social media, God forbid. So this has been a really challenging year for you on really multiple levels is what I'm hearing. But I think your point about sometimes we just need to, one, let ourselves feel it and let it go through us give ourselves some space and then pick ourselves back up and get back to it. What you just said is so important because what are we told from childhood is, no, don't cry, be happy. I'll give you something to cry about. (laughs) Well, guess what? Sometimes we just need to just be with sadness. We need to be with failure. And I think we need to normalize failure. We need to normalize pain. We need to normalize. Things are not always going to go according to plan. And if I was given a little bit more training on how to bounce back from when things don't go according to plan, I would have been a lot happier. (laughs) I would have saved myself a lot of pain and suffering. I think that's true for a lot of people, for sure, because you're right. We get so many unhealthy messages about negative feelings, and we live in a society that really so much encourages us to avoid them and not feel them. And so it really causes this very problematic relationship with them until that breaks. And then if we make these sorts of shifts to realize, yeah, these feelings aren't fun, they're uncomfortable, they're painful, and they're feelings. They're also messengers, they're also teachers. And in fact, when we change our relationship with them, there's a whole lot of power and possibility that comes from that. Now, along the way here, we skipped this piece, so I want to jump back on the professional side. At what point did you decide that the toxicology path was not one you were going to continue? And 
what was the the journey of going from toxicology to the work that you're doing now? So as you have pointed out earlier, nothing about my life is straightforward. Okay, so from when I was in the laboratory synthesizing drugs for cancer, I knew that this path was not a path that would be fulfilling for me to be mixing up chemicals in the laboratory every day. So at that moment, during that time, in order for me to feel happier while I was talking to chemicals all day in a male-dominated environment that were giving me a hard time every step of the way, I started doing voluntary work for different organizations. So I worked for the Council for Drug Problems and I worked for AIDS Action, essentially fighting discrimination and health disparities because at the time HIV was very much labeled as a gay disease or a people of color disease and so on and so forth. So doing this kind of work gave me the opportunity to staff the hotline, the AIDS hotline. I was using my clinical education, but then I did a counseling certificate. I was helping people through their difficult emotions. And I kind of got the bug, you know, of working with people, of supporting people. To a certain degree, even my nine-year-old aspiration to find the cause of human suffering and alleviate it, create the antidote, was very much aligned with now being out there in the world and breaking down health disparities, improving health outcomes, making a positive contribution, if you will, you know, in the world. So at the time, I did want to go more towards a helping professional kind of like direction. But because I did not have any background other than, you know, my little certificates that I got in counseling and stuff, I was pointed another wrong path, which was through the pharmaceutical industry, using my clinical education, not talking to chemicals anymore, but training people. I started off, of course, as a sales rep in the pharmaceutical industry, then became a training manager, then a district manager where I was leading people. And I just kept going because corporate America can be extremely enticing. It's a very lucrative path for one to take. And it wasn't really until I injured my spine, I could no longer do that job, that I decided that I was going to reconnect with my nine-year-old dream and all the happiness that I found in doing voluntary work. And at first I thought, okay, who is more prone to what happened to me, to burnout? Guess what? The people that helped me (laughs) find my way, therapists, counselors, are the most vulnerable populations to burnout and compassion fatigue. So I decided I can start small. It's those micro steps that you were talking about earlier. I thought, okay, I will start by putting together systematically organizing what I'm learning for myself in my healing journey, getting a little bit deeper, getting certified in different modalities, and I'll put together presentations and I will go to different associations where therapists hang out and I will share some of this information to support them and help them avoid my mistakes that led to burnout. So that's how I transition, if you will, from the laboratories into the corporate healthcare space and then from there into what I do today. It was really the moment where I reconnected with the true essence of who I am and what I really wanted to do with my life. As you started to do that work, what was the experience of doing it like for you? How did that feel to be stepping into that space versus the work you'd been doing for so long? 
Oh my goodness. I cannot even begin to tell you the difference that it made in every single cell of my body, you know, and granted, I'll never forget my very first presentation. It was actually for the Women's Association of Addiction Treatment. And I was in a room of 25 women and heading over to give that presentation. I think it was called uh, How to Break Up with Burnout and Compassion Fatigue. I was so nervous because I knew a lot of these ladies. Some of them are, you know, prominent researchers. And I'm thinking, oh my goodness, they're going to come to listen to me, to what I have to say. Who am I to go in there and have this amazing audience, you know? However, when I stepped up on that stage, I cannot tell you when you're asking me, how did that feel? Every single part of my being, my body, my mind was beaming with excitement, I felt completely aligned. I felt in a kind of flow that I've never experienced before. And suddenly, every fear, every anxiety, you know, me, the anxiously attached child, had no anxiety. <laughs> I was right exactly where I was supposed to be. And I could see every single person because I weave my story into my presentations, you know, inspired by Dan Siegel, who I love his research and work. I take them through the heart and science of being human within my story. And I would see people tearing up in my audience from that very first presentation. And I just felt completely aligned. I felt completely at peace. I knew I was exactly where I was supposed to be. Such a radical shift, huh? It was an incredible shift. <laughs> yeah. Tell us more about the work that you do now and, and the different sorts of things um, that you're doing in, in your helping work now. In my labor of love, my childhood dream has kind of like come to life in this little stress management business, unconventional stress management, I should say, called MindZen. And basically through MindZen, I'm on a mission to change minds and lives for the better by taking stress out of them. And very well aligned with my entire story, the whole premise of MindZen, you know, I think the more conventional stress management approaches pertain in getting rid of stressors, get away from the toxic job, get rid of the toxic friend, leave the difficult relationship. But my approach is a little bit different. So the way I support my clients is I help them build the infrastructure, the bulletproof jacket, if you will, that will prevent all those external stressors from taking over their body and mind. And I do it in a way where I systematically organize everything that the latest mind-body research brings on the surface, but I translate it into very practical ways that somebody can add into their life without having to escape to the Himalayas or, you know, stop what they're doing to learn a new skill. You know, for example, emotional intelligence, it's a great predictor of success and happiness in life. I create little easy-to-use resources to allow one to make intelligent use of our emotions. And all those are science-backed. You know, of course, I did not discover emotional intelligence. But this particular resource, to give you an example, is a one-page cheat sheet that has inventory of emotions and five questions that I myself had to ask when I was overwhelmed with anxiety, you know, that allowed me to process and unpack my own emotions as opposed to getting derailed by them. Because everybody tells us negative emotions, they're part of life. Just process them, release them, let them go. But I found that I didn't have, except for my therapist <laughs> who would hold my hand through it, I didn't have something practical to bring the theory of emotional intelligence in my life. 
So I found that by asking those simple five questions, I was able to, instead of getting lost in them, do something different, relate differently to my own emotions and release them easier. So I offer all these different tools and resources in multiple different levels. So I offer one-on-one coaching, of course. I do workshops and seminars. I offer those to organizations, but sometimes I also do community events for people within our community. And because of COVID, or I should say thanks to COVID, (laughs) I started offering uh, virtual 10-week programs, well, five and 10-week programs that I call brain rebooting programs. So, you know, when life gets crazy and your brain gets overwhelmed and you don't know where to start and you want to find a reset button, (laughs) these programs essentially hold your hand step-by-step on making small, subtle changes day by day that will allow you to reboot your brain on demand and build that kind of internal resilience, if you will, to external stressors. So I'm hearing a real focus on practical, actionable stuff. It sounds like you've really identified that as as a gap and are, are trying to fill that in how you approach doing this work. I think one of the big problems we have today, we're, we're living in an information overload era. Everything we need is right here, you know, at the click of a button on our computer. So a lot of our challenges are not because we don't have enough information. I was not able to find a way where I can take this information and make it applicable to me in my life. And I did see that there was a gap. And since I had to follow this process for myself, and go back, delve back deep into the science that I studied and I did research and get up to speed with what's happening today. The World Health Organization has defined stress as the epidemic of the century. And I saw what it did to me, to my well-being, to my relationships, to my finances. So yeah, certainly I think it is super important to be able to have practical ways to apply all this knowledge as opposed to getting overwhelmed. It's very easy to get overwhelmed. And also I found it very easy to get distracted. You know, one person was saying, do this. And the other person was saying, do that. What in your experience would you say are the biggest mistakes that people make when they're trying to make transformations in this area and and do some of this work? By far. And I'll say I'm the first person that make this mistake. The biggest mistake we make that makes it impossible to find our way out is that we mistake the symptoms that we experience, whether that's anxiety, insomnia, difficulty concentrating, brain fog. We mistake those symptoms as a personal flaw, as an indication that we're malfunctioning, we're broken, there's something wrong with us. And I know that I made that mistake and we could have this conversation. This could be another hour of a podcast, but What's happening is we're seeing everybody's highlights on Facebook or on LinkedIn, right? And then we're comparing that with how we're feeling fragile and alone and, you know, and then we can't sleep at night and maybe we're eating a little bit too much and we've put a few extra pounds during the pandemic. So we're thinking, what's wrong with me? Look at everybody else. Everybody else is so blessed on Facebook. And the trouble is we don't realize how powerful our mind is and how powerful our brain is and how our mind Basically, and our inner critic can activate our stress response, just like being chased by a mountain lion would. If you have a critical manager or somebody who's very toxic in your life, you let them go 
and you go away and you go home and you close your door and you're safe from that. But your inner critic, our inner critic is with us 24-7. It's hard because we live in a society that operates in a way that really seems to, I don't know if it's so much encourage it, but there's still a lot of stereotypes in our world around criticism as motivational tool. But we know that really doesn't work, but we haven't quite been able to, to let go of that yet. Yeah, you know, it is one of those things that we know that it's not working, you know, and it comes down to choosing that moment in time where we can at least embark on a journey of just changing how we relate to some of those elements of life. That's the way I'm looking at it. And you were asking me earlier, how do you do it? How do you get unstuck? I embrace the stuckness. I embrace the fact that my brain has been shaped. It's not really my fault, but it's been shaped to see my imposter and my inner critic as great motivational strategies. It comes down in very practical terms because I'm leaving my message. I don't promote or teach anybody anything that I don't do. And to make it super practical, for me, Steve, it comes down to pausing. I pause a lot now. Some people say to me, Hey, you used to be Mario Andretti. I used to drive so fast and now I drive. <laughs> You're so zen. You're a slow driver, you know, but it's a matter of pausing, you know. So when I hear my inner critic, I have an accent. Sometimes I mispronounce words. And when I hear my inner critic, it's just a matter of me pausing and saying, okay, I see where you're going, you know, and I literally talk to my inner critic as if we're sitting across from each other. I'm like, okay, I hear what you're saying. I see that you're trying to protect me. So do you want to work together here or what? So we can get this interview done or do you want to sit here and keep me confined, playing small and not doing anything that I want to do? So it's really a matter of pausing, seeing it and saying, how do I want to relate to my inner critic now? How do I want to relate to my imposter? And how can we do things better so we can move forward? The pause, I think, is such a powerful and important thing because it really allows us to get perspective, to step outside of ourselves, to see things in a different way or whatever it is. But we're really talking about perspective and recognizing that these things that can seem in the moment so absolute and fixed, and this is what it is are not that they're subjective. We can look at them in any number of different ways. And when we make the choice to look at them from a different angle or perspective, that is often when we're able to go a different direction than down some of these negative spirals that we all can be so easily trapped in. I think it's part of our human nature to get super easily trapped and hooked, you know, in automatic ways of being. And oftentimes people don't realize that that is not a deficiency, but that's part of like our brain's efficiency in identifying things <laughs> as threats and getting us hooked in that fat or flight. A lot of those are like automatic. So, you know, to your point, Oftentimes we're thinking, oh, oh, I'm such a horrible person. Like I'm broken. I need to fix myself. I need to change. But in reality, I think the whole notion that you have to just, you just have to get out of your own way, you know, is BS. I think we need to get in the way of the default ways our brain has been shaped by both our collective evolution as well as our personal history. So, you know, like Dan Siegel says, biology and biography, right, has shaped our brain to be 
so easily hyper excited, not excited in a good way, but excited in a way where, you know, we completely lose access to our prefrontal cortex and all our great executive function. So pausing, it's a matter of us choosing how do we want to relate to everything that's in our life, our kids, our work, our dreams, our aspirations, our partners. How do I want to relate to all of this? So that I stay in my right mind, so that the default, those automatic ways of being, the inner critic, the imposter, the perfectionist are not running my life on autopilot. To me, that's what it comes down to. The autopilot is so significantly influenced, not only from our own experiences, which can go any number of ways, but just by our world, which is so just overwhelmingly full of information and input and stuff and noise, so much of which is trying to manipulate, control, or otherwise influence us. And so if we don't find a way to really consciously and deliberately push back against that, it's going to cause some problems. So I know you had said before that COVID, like for so many other people, had a real impact on your work and what you were doing. And now as we are starting to come out of this last year plus of, of this very challenging time and the world is starting to open back up again and things are, I won't say getting back to normal, but are shifting again, let's call it. What are the things that you're thinking about or planning to do as you go forward here? Just like everybody else, probably midpoint of living through a pandemic, I could not really see that we would ever be able to go back to the old norm. And then in the last six months, I realized that perhaps I don't want to go back to the old norm. I'm more about creating a new norm. And this new norm for me looks like, how can I take everything that I've created here in systematically organizing all this knowledge and making it practical, but instead of actually helping therapists, counselors, coaches through the organizations or one-on-one coaching that only gives me the capacity to serve so many people at a time. COVID kind of opened the door for me to break through one of my biggest fears, which is creating an online platform where I can share some of this wisdom through videos. I get so much energy and positivity from working with my clients that I thought I would die if I'm trying to share some of my wisdom and knowledge on a video, you know, by myself in a room without having that interaction. But this whole experience allowed me to realize that I can support so many more people and make my knowledge, whatever I have to offer, more widely available without any geographical constraints. So what I will be doing going forward is actually offering, uh, it looks like it's going to be more like 10-week brain rebooting programs where I'm able to support people essentially to train their brain to be happier, to train their brain to be more resilient. And my plan for the future is, yes, I will continue offering one-on-one coaching, seminars and workshops, but my plan is to have those 10-week brain rebooting programs as well on a virtual basis four times a year. It's extremely fulfilling to be able to break through some of my own limiting beliefs as well and realize I am able to support more people because as you know, being a therapist and a coach, there's only so many people you can support on a one-on-one basis. There's only so many hours like throughout the day. So it does feel very rewarding to be able to find a way to make myself more accessible to a lot more people and being able to impact a lot more people in this way. So that makes me super excited. Although I still have to uh, challenge myself (laughs) to do the online stuff. 
something that's been floating around in my head, and I, I'm sure a few people listening are wondering too. When you've made this shift, I'm curious about your parents and what their thoughts were about this. When I launched my own business, yeah, my parents overall, they love me so much in their own unique way, but I think every step of the way of what I've done, I never really got their approval. <laughs> Let's just put it that way. It, it's interesting because my mom has always had this dream of me becoming a professor. And it's interesting because my programs right now are essentially brain training programs, right? So you could say her dream is actually being fulfilled as well. But yeah, I mean, my parents think I'm crazy for every choice that I've made, that I should be a professor at some academic institution, you know, and live their dream. But, you know, we all have our dreams. And it sounds like you're really aware, though, that doing what you're doing now is the right path for you, not only in, from an intellectual standpoint, but from like a felt and experienced, and maybe even spiritual standpoint, if I'm not stretching too far to use that word. You know, you're actually not stretching too far because to me, the spiritual side of me is simply my higher power, my authentic self, free of the labels and everybody else's expectations. And, you know, the wonderful thing about being congruent with who I really am is that my parents, it's interesting that you would ask me because if you were to ask me this question like 15 years ago, you could still hear some anxiety in my voice because I would still be seeking their approval. But the wonderful thing about my parents now is that I can love them so much for who they are. And at the same time, I don't really expect them to understand what it is that I'm doing. I'm not dismissive of my parents' dreams and aspirations, but there's also a fine line between, hey, here's who I am and I can love you, you know, without necessarily needing your approval to be who I am. So what would you say for you right now and going forward, do you see as the biggest obstacle or challenge for you as you continue on your journey? Is there something specific you're wrestling with right now or that you see in the not too far distance? There are a gazillion obstacles on my path. I'm 6,500 miles away from home. I'm a single mom running a small business with a lot of you know challenges and hurdles that I have to hope over, you know, every step of the way, I'm feeling fairly confident that by having my own definition of happiness or having defined my own happiness and success, you know, seeing it more as my ability to remain balanced. I'm just going to say balanced. I'm not even going to say happy, you know, and confident in my own abilities, resourceful in my abilities to handle the ups and downs of life. I'm feeling good that even when I fail, I can really take it with a grain of salt. I think, was it George Washington that said, success is uh, going from failure to failure without loss of enthusiasm. I don't know if it was him or not, but I've heard the quote before. I'll, I will now be looking it up and I'll attribute it uh, properly in the show notes at the very least. But it is, I think, a great quote, because I think that it's got a lot of power in it. If you can go from failure to failure without a loss of enthusiasm, that is the route to ultimate success, I would say. For me at this point, it's not even a matter of success because, you know, to be honest with you, I follow very much the Ralph Waldo Emerson's definition of success. Even if one person breathes easier because I have lived, I have succeeded. You know, I no longer aspire to be a VP of an organization or to make this much money or, you know, like that's not really what 
my definition of happiness is, you know, if I'm able to go from one experience to the next without letting it derail me, affect me, if I'm able to handle challenges without snapping at my kid or, you know, being mean, you know, like that's good enough for me. You know what I'm saying? I'm definitely seeing my life, especially when I come across challenges as a little tightrope. And I consider myself that I'm doing a great job when I'm able to stay up as I'm bouncing through the tightrope. And that way life becomes a lot easier. You know what I'm saying? I'm literally enjoying the journey because that way, whether things are happening that I like or I don't like, it's more about me. And I'm going to quote John Kabat-Zinn, who's another one of my favorites. In his mindfulness-based stress reduction program, I learned that happiness and success today for me is more like a love affair where you take everything that comes with a grain of salt. You put the welcome mat out there for all the different experiences, good or bad, with a sense of equanimity. Earlier on, we're talking about anxiety and how debilitating it can be. But anxiety, fear, happiness, joy, they're all just different forms of energy. So what if we base our happiness on boosting our ability to regulate our energy, to regulate the attention of our mind and hence our energy in our body so that we can remain balanced. That definition of happiness is a lot more fulfilling to me than getting a whole bunch of our words and a big fat paycheck, you know. I think that framing of all of these things, if we start to think of it as energy and conceptualize it from that way of how do I work with this energy? What can I take from it? How can I redirect it? What can I do in engaging with it? That really can be very transformative. So Zelly, where would be the best place for people to connect with you and find out more about you online? If people would like to learn more about my work, they can visit my website www.mindzen.com if they would like to learn more information about my upcoming programs, my seminars, or my brain rebooting journeys. Another great way people can learn more about my work is to subscribe to my weekly stress busting tips. I will put links for everything in the show notes as well. So folks can find that information there and get in touch with you. Well, Sally, I want to say thank you very much for taking the time to come on the show today. I'm really grateful for the work that you're doing out in the world because it's, it's really important stuff and benefiting a lot of folks. So thank you for that. Oh, Steve, it was my pleasure. I really, really, really enjoyed it. That's it for this episode of the Sensitive Rebel Podcast. Thanks so much for listening. You'll find show notes, other episodes, and a whole lot more at sensitiverebel.com. We'll be back next week with another conversation. Until then, keep moving forward.